Tonight I have the privilege of bringing the words. Let's, let's pray before we begin tonight. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. You're a God who is here with us right now. And Lord, I thank you for the incredible privilege it is to walk together as a spiritual family. Something that we hold so closely here is family. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us through the gospel to be more passionate lovers of you and each other tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a confession to make to start tonight. I absolutely hate conflict. I am not the type of person who enjoys having a hard conversation. If anybody can empathize with me, could you just, can I see a show of hands? Okay, cool. So some, I mean, some people are just born like they don't mind speaking the truth. You know, they keep it 100. Like they're just, they're not afraid to pull any punches. But I have always been kind of wired to keep the harmony, to keep the peace. I'll give you a funny example of that, kind of a small example. Uh, there's someone in this church who uh, is a dear brother who actually mispronounced my first name for about 10 years. <laughs> and I never had the heart to correct him because I'm like, you know what? It's close enough. We're cool. We'll just kind of keep going with it. But that's kind of like my, my natural tendency. Um, and I want to give you kind of a window into my journey through handling conflict. Because I found myself fighting against passivity, overlooking things that I really need to have tough conversations with. And then there were other times that, in reaction to that, that I kind of swung the pendulum in the other direction. Where I was like, okay, you know, I started me uh, meditating on passages where Jesus was flipping over tables. And, you know, I was like, okay, I gotta be tough. I gotta be, I can't let people run over me. I gotta be strong. And then it ended up just hurting people, being too tough, too, being too rigid, being cold. And so how many of you know that God has called us to walk in love and in truth? And in order to handle conflicts, we got to marry those two things. So tonight, the title of the message is How to Handle Conflicts. And I got to just, let me just hasten to say that. I'm not aware of any conflicts in the church, okay? This isn't like, you know, you've heard of subtweeting or uh, this isn't a sub-sermon, like I'm targeting somebody out there just to handle a conflict from the pulpit here. This is just something that the Holy Spirit put on my heart, so I just wanted to throw that out there. So tonight, we're going to do two things. We're going to look at a conflict between two people you would not expect to have a conflict with each other. And that's Paul, the Apostle Paul and Peter in Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 through 14. We're going to look at why were they in conflict and how the conflict was resolved. And the second part of this message is going to be looking at that example and drawing some principles, practical principles, as to how we can resolve conflict, mostly in the church, in spiritual family. But we'll also talk about towards the end some conflicts in maybe marriage or at work. So are you guys excited about this? I'm excited. This is a little different, but I'm excited. I think it's something that's not talked a lot about and something that all of us face. So let's turn to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I want to read this together. It says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, and Cephas is another name for Peter. It's the Aramaic name for Peter. 
So when Peter came to Antioch, I, the Apostle Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now we're jumping in the beginning of Galatians, but not the very beginning. We're, be, we're jumping into Galatians chapter 2, which is a whole letter. And so I want to give you some context to bring you up to speed as to where we are in the passage that we looked at just now. Galatians was a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in a place called Galatia, where Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys. And Acts chapter 13 and 14 tell, tells the story of everything that Paul did in Galatia. At the time, Christianity was made up of mostly Jews. If you remember, Jesus said that his ministry was, he was sent by God to the lost sheep of Israel. So he primarily ministered to the nation of Israel. And the epicenter of Christianity at the time was Jerusalem. But God had commissioned, Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, eventually to the ends of the earth. This gospel message was not just to be contained to one people group or to one locale. It was to spread to all the nations. If you remember, even back in Genesis, God had made a promise to Abraham that through his descendants, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. So it's always been God's intention to have a global, multi-ethnic, multicultural family, which makes the video we just saw really cool to see that come to fulfillment. So at the time of this passage, Christianity was mostly uh, Jewish Christians, but it was starting to spread to Gentiles, to those who were not Jewish. But there was a group of Jewish Christians who believed that if a Gentile, someone who wasn't Jewish, was going to come into the faith, that they had to believe in Jesus, but they also had to embrace Jewish heritage. They had to embrace circumcision. They had to embrace the Jewish festivities and holidays. They had to embrace a Jewish diet. Basically, it was Jesus plus Jewish practices equals salvation. And Paul is going to write this letter primarily to vehemently attack that assertion. He's writing the, book of, the letter of Galatians to explain what the true gospel is, that salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And his message to uh, the, the Gentiles and the leaders of this, this church is that they don't need to add anything to the gospel. They don't have to add anything to faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so what he does, the first chapter, he starts in a very different manner than most of his letters. After giving his initial greeting, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
Very strong language because the people who had started by faith in this church had wandered away from faith alone and had started to add these Jewish practices, trusting in something in addition to Jesus. And so what he did, he kind of tells his story of how he received this gospel. He's, he's trying to show them the, that there is only one gospel, that he got it from God. And he took the gospel message that he had, the gospel that he was called to preach to the Gentiles, and he went to the church leaders of Jerusalem. He went to Peter. He went to James. He went to John. And he submitted this gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles and said, what, did you, what do you think of this? I want to make sure I'm not running in vain. And they say, no, you're preaching the gospel. Keep going. And so there was a, uh, an agreement between everybody, the church leaders, that the gospel is about Jesus and Jesus alone. You have faith in Jesus, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, the family of God is big enough for all. So first, what is this conflict? Why, why is there all of a sudden this strong language in verse 11? Look at verse 11 with me. It says, but when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So here you have two of the primary leaders of Christianity, Peter and Paul, okay? This isn't Joe Schmo and his, and his you know, sidekick, okay? This is the two leaders. These are the, like the, the, the fathers of Christianity at this point. And they're opposed. Paul says, I opposed Peter to his face. Now, when you think of opposition, we think of sports, Right? We think of a big 350-pound lineman, defensive lineman, coming after a quarterback and going after that offensive lineman. They're going after each other or wrestling two guys, grappling with each other, trying to take each other down. And that's the picture here. These two men are opposed to each other. They're standing on the other side of each other. And this is Peter and Paul, the leaders of the church. Imagine how this might discredit this movement that is starting. Imagine what the church is thinking. They're being splintered in half from looking at their two leaders. Pastor Brett and Pastor Jim are at odds with each other. What are we going to do? That's what's happening here. And people are often surprised when conflict arises in church. It's like church is supposed to be the safe place where there is no conflict. We're the people of God. We're the family of God. We're Christians. We have the Holy Spirit. Surely there will not be any conflict in Grace Covenant Church. I hate to be the, the bearer of bad news, but if the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter had conflict, there's a pretty good chance there's going to be some conflict in this house. Nod your head if you're in agreement with that. Okay. So why were they in conflict? Well, Paul says, I oppose him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter was in the wrong. And then he goes on, verses 12 through the first part of verse 14, to give kind of a fuller explanation of what was happening. He says in verse 12, For before certain, man, before certain men came from James, he, meaning Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. So here's what's happening. Peter had a vision in Acts chapter 10 and 11 of a sheet coming down from heaven, and on that sheet was a bunch of animals that he as a Jew was not supposed to eat. And God tells him, rise, kill, and eat. You can imagine for a Jewish man who spent his whole life eating kosher, this was a pretty alarming dream that he's had. So he's like trying to figure this thing out, and as he's figuring it out, he gets a knock on the door, and three men show up at his door, and these are men sent by a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He is the epitome of a Gentile, someone that Peter is not supposed to associate as a good Jewish man. 
But Peter's just had this vision, and he realizes this is God. The timing of this is definitely God. So Peter goes with these men. He goes to Cornelius. He preaches the gospel to Cornelius and to his household. The Holy Spirit moves in power. Now, remember, the framework here is you, he, Peter kind of has this idea that this gospel is supposed to go out to the ends of the earth. But at this point, his ministry has just been for Jews. He's just seen Jews get saved. And now, all of a sudden, Gentiles are receiving Christ. The Holy Spirit is falling on Gentiles in the same way that they're falling on Jews. This is movement altering. This is life changing. This is, this is something that Peter had never seen before. And so Peter goes to the church in Jerusalem, he said, and he tells these guys, look, you're not going to believe what happened. The Holy Spirit is for Gentiles too. How many of you guys are thankful for that? That's why we're here today. Amen. So Peter and Paul are in agreement about this. Gentiles can be Christians too. They don't have to follow Jewish practices. But then what happened was some influential men from Jerusalem sent by uh, from James come down to this church and Peter recognizes that there's going to be a conflict because these Jewish Christians are insisting that that dream wasn't real and that if these Gentile Christians are really going to be holy, that they need to observe these strict Jewish rules. And so when these Jewish Christians come, Peter, the rock, Jesus called him, you would expect would stand up for the gospel. And that doesn't happen. Second half of verse 12, but when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So why is Paul in conflict with Peter it's really due to how Peter handled the conflict, handled the conflict with these people of the circumcision party. In the face of conflict, Peter withdrew himself. He was acting out of fear. He's afraid of upsetting this certain influential group. And also what's going on here, which has some specific specific application to us in our day, is there's racism happening. Because here a man is Peter who's preferring his own people. He's preferring his own background, his own customs, his own preferences at the expense of another group of people, the Gentiles. And underlying this fear and this racism is really pride. That's underneath of every sin. Peter was more concerned about his own well-being than the well-being that the gospel afforded to the Gentiles. And look what this leads to. This conflict is not just limited to Paul and Peter. Or I'm sorry, Peter and these, these leaders of the circumcision party. It goes much deeper. Because if you don't handle conflict, it ends up bleeding out and affecting other people around you. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, the encourager, was led astray by their hypocrisy. They see Peter, their leader, acting hypocritically. They say, if it's good enough for Peter, it's good enough for us. And now you have a whole church schism. The point being that when conflict arises in a church, even if it's just one person, one person, it needs to be handled and it needs to be handled well. If it's not, it'll affect people around, those two who are in conflict. It's telling that Paul describes this whole situation, specifically Peter's actions, as hypocrisy. Play acting is the meaning of the word there. 
Peter knew what was right, but did the opposite for his own convenience and the convenience of those he most aligned with. He was the definition of a hypocrite. And this was the ultimate litmus test for Paul as to how he should handle this. Verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, just so we're all on the same page with that word gospel, this is not about the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not about uh, Kirk Franklin and the gospel genre. Okay. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died and resurrected and that he offers salvation to anyone who would repent and believe. That's the good news that Peter proclaimed, that the apostle Paul proclaimed, that the whole church was founded upon. So this is more than just an issue of like, who are you going to sit next to at the lunch table, or what kind of food are we going to have at the next potluck? This is a gospel issue. This is at the core of Christianity. The gospel is a liberating message. It brings freedom to anyone regardless of race, socioeconomical class, gender. And so that's what Paul is fighting for. That's why he opposes Peter to his face. And Peter's actions show us how to not handle conflict with passivity. Peter's passivity, his silence, was actually preaching a gospel. It wasn't preaching the true gospel. It was preaching a, a twisted gospel, a perverted gospel. You've heard the expression, actions speak louder than words, because what Peter was saying was different than what he was doing. Yeah. So for us, withdrawing or shying away from conflict when a person's actions is out of step with the gospel is not spiritual. We can cover it thinking it's a spiritual thing. We're just overlooking it. We're just, you know, showing some grace. It's not taking the higher road. If it's motivated by fear, it's cowardly. It negatively affects not just us, not just the other person. It affects those around us. It affects the whole church, or it can affect the whole church. It's hypocritical, and at its core, it's prideful. It's elevating my own comfort and preferences at the expense of others, and at the expense, most importantly, of the glory of God. And so here is how Paul resolved the conflict. Look what Paul does, verse, second half of verse 14. It says, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul's not going to shy away from this confrontation, even though this is Peter, the rock in whom Jesus would use to build the church. He doesn't go behind Peter's back gossiping. He doesn't leave a hundred small hints hoping that Peter will get the message. He doesn't send out like a tweet hoping that Peter will read it. Okay, they didn't have Twitter then. But he confronts Peter and points out the inconsistency of his actions with the gospel. That's key. It's not that Peter had offended him personally. It's not even primarily that he offended a whole people, although he had. The primary offense was against God himself. And that's why Paul had to act. That's why he had to boldly confront Peter. So what can we learn from Paul and how he handled this conflict with Peter that can help us resolve the conflicts that we face or might face? This is the second half, helping us resolve conflicts that we experience. 
I want to give you four steps. The first one is to examine yourself. Why do I say examine yourself? Well, we are not the Apostle Paul. Raise your hand if you're in agreement. Okay. So before we go boldly confronting people to their face, maybe we should just pause for a second, examine ourselves, get in the presence of God, and figure out if there's any sin in us. See, this is the, the, the danger of kind of just jumping into the middle of the book like I've done tonight, is we might miss what precedes this passage. And what precedes this passage is before Paul boldly confronts Peter, he actually went to Peter in the beginning of his ministry to submit his gospel to Peter. So there's relationship here. This isn't just like a one-off, you see somebody in the hallway, they give you a wrong look and all of a sudden you're up in their face and telling them they're not living in light of the gospel. (laughs) There's community, there's relationship, there's accountability. In fact, Paul saw Peter as a leader so much so that he was willing to submit his message to Peter earlier on in his ministry. And if we're in a conflict, the best place to start is to get before the presence of God and to say, God, search my heart. There's probably something wrong with me in this picture that needs to change. Before I go to that other person, God, you search me and show me where I might be missing the mark. We need to have people in our lives, like Paul did with Peter, who we trust to speak into our lives. That when there's a conflict, we have blind spots. We've been hurt. We've been offended. We can't see clearly. So we need to have people that we can call, whether it's a small group leader or a pastor or somebody that, on our, that we're serving with, and Ask them, hey, what do you think about this situation? Not presenting it just from our side, but giving a clear explanation of what happened. What do you think? What are you seeing? I might be missing something. That's called humility. That's called maturity. That's giving permission for others who are more mature in their faith to speak into our lives and to help mold us and shape us. Because oftentimes when there's conflict, God is wanting to do more than just work in the other person. He's wanting to do work in us. Why do we, Jesus said it like this in Matthew 7, chapter 7, verse 3. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Ask God, God, what is the log that is preventing me from really seeing? Secondly, first examine yourself. Secondly, evaluate the nature of the conflict. Is this really a gospel issue? Is this impacting the gospel? Now, I know that might be kind of unclear what that is, so I wanted to give you three very specific examples. And like I said, starting this message, these are not like real-life examples. I don't have these examples in my head. Okay, I'm not picturing a certain group. But here are three specific examples that I could imagine happening in a church like ours. Here's the first one. And these are issues that involve the gospel. Number one, at a multi-ethnic, multi-racial church like ours, a church where there's Koreans, there's Latinos, there's white, black, everything in between, even though we're all under the same roof, I would imagine it would be very comfortable to gather with people who are like us. I would imagine it would be very easy to have a small group that has in my case, mostly white people, or a small group that's mostly black people. And there are obviously uh, things that we have to overcome, like language that prevents us a lot of times from worshiping together or fellowshipping together. 
But as a church, what it looks like to walk in harmony with each other is that when we see that, when our natural tendency is to kind of cling to people who have the same music preferences, the same language, the same culture, we should fight against that because that's a gospel issue. Remember there was a pastor here who who planted a church from L.A. from this church named Pastor Dion. And immediately Pastor Dion, he's a hero of mine, he came to this church, he's a Korean-American, and he recognized that at the time there were very few Korean-Americans going to this church. And he recognized that there was no one on the staff that was a Korean-American. And so there was a gap culturally because we, at least let me speak for myself, I had never really had fellowship with another Korean. And so the first thing he did, I'll never forget this. I was, it was my first year on staff. First thing he did is he invited us to go to a Korean restaurant with him and to experience his culture. And because of that relationship, because of that friendship, I experienced the richness of his, of his culture. But more than that, I experienced the richness of our God. Because our God is a diverse God. He created the diversity. His heart is to see every nation, language, and tribe worshiping him. So when we build those relationships, we get to see more of who God is. We get to see more of the family of God. It's a gospel issue. If we don't have any relationships with people who don't look like us, we need to fight for the gospel. We need to be intentional about building those relationships. If we see certain groups pocketing together, we need to oppose that graciously and in love and assert ourselves and invite that kind of harmony and fellowship together. Here's the second thing. I had a lady who came to me who was in a small group who uh, she was being led in a small group by someone who she didn't know very well. She said, Pastor Stephen, you won't believe something that was said in this small group. It was wrong. And so I said to her, I don't know the people in that small group, why don't you go and tell them what you heard and ask for clarification? And maybe they might be wrong and it'll be a moment to come together. That's what it looks like to have harmony is that if there's something being said in a small group or in a ministry that's not the gospel, we need to speak up in love, not just in truth, but in love and truth and speak up because if you're having that question, maybe somebody else is thinking the same exact thing. Here's a third example. You have some kind of conflict with somebody in church. God forbid the parking lot attendant looks the other way when you're passing by and doesn't give you the preferential parking spot that your heart so desperately longs for. (laughs) And now all of a sudden, you are no longer in fellowship with the parking lot attendant. When you see the parking lot attendant, you want nothing to do with them. You want to sit on the other side of the church. Now I'm exaggerating a little bit. But if you're not close enough Let me put it this way. If you're not having conflicts at church, it's probably an indication that you're not close enough to anybody. You're not doing life with anyone. You're not having conflict. You're like, I'm going to be here. This message don't apply to me at all, Pastor Stephen. I am good. I may not be in a small group. I may not be a member. I may not be serving anywhere, but I am good. I got no conflicts. (laughs) The reality is, if we're doing life together, we're going to have conflict. And when the conflict arises, instead of separating ourselves, we need to press in. Start praying for that person that you have a conflict with. Start loving that person. Start serving that person. It's really hard to stay angry at a person you're praying for. You notice that? Like I get angry at somebody. I'm I'm hurt. My wife just told me, why don't you just pray for them? Oh, no, I don't want to pray for them. Because God starts softening my heart. And God starts closing that gap. 
And when two people who don't like each other initially begin to love and serve each other, that's a picture of the gospel. Matthew 18, verse 15, this is another passage I would encourage you to look up, but we don't have time for, but just one verse from there. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So if somebody sins against you, it's incumbent upon you as the one who got sinned against to go take the initiative to them. Not to say, oh, that brother was really sorry. He would come and talk to me. No, go take the initiative because we have to fight for unity. Those are all gospel issues. Now, here are some things that are not gospel issues. And if I'm honest, I've had too many moments where I thought I was fighting over a gospel issue only to realize later that I was really just upset about a personality clash, a misunderstanding, a difference of opinion, a difference in preference. Or to be really honest, I was really upset that God was using different people, people who are different than me, to expose the pride in my life and to help me change. I'm going to oppose them to their face. No, you just need to humble your pride and repent. There's conflict, and oftentimes people leave churches over issues that aren't gospel issues. The time of our services, the number of worship songs, the style of our worship, the small group leader who didn't chose, choose you to be the apprentice, things like that. These are not gospel issues. These are not issues that should divide a church. So it's worth pondering, is what I'm upset over something that's preventing God from getting the fullest glory from his son's death and resurrection, or am I just upset that my pride is being checked? If it's not a gospel issue, there's some wisdom in Proverbs. Someone offends you, it's a smaller thing, just overlook it. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's, a and it's his glory to overlook an offense. If it's not a gospel issue, just cover it. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Start praying for the person. Overlook the offense. Something that will pass in a moment. But if we do determine it's a gospel issue, number three, examine yourself. The second thing, evaluate the nature of the conflict. The third thing, if we determine it is a gospel issue, Speak the truth in love. Now, this is a point that some of us really feel emboldened, right? Because we're naturally bent this way, maybe. We're going to keep it 100. We're gonna, if she can't handle the truth, that's her problem. But our words, even when speaking truth, need to be seasoned with grace. Paul opposed Peter to his face, but it takes love to tell someone directly, eye to eye, in love, your conduct's not in step with the gospel. It was in relationship. It wasn't behind his back. It was with courage. We call that the, the grace truth sandwich. Have you heard the grace truth sandwich? If you have to, if there's something that you, you need to correct somebody with, somebody with, you start with grace, then you give truth, then you sandwich it with grace. So, brother, I just gotta say, you are, you are one of my closest friends, and I love you like a brother. And it's, been, it's been amazing to see the progress of God in your life. But you know, the way that you talk to your wife is something that I think God wants to soften your heart, to treat her like a daughter of God. But I just want you to know you have it in you, that your marriage is going to be rock solid, that God's going to do something great. Grace, truth, grace. And you know, when I've been on the other end of that, receiving that, and it still stings. 
even with the grace, even with the, even with the, the double grace sandwich, it still, it hurts. And my knee-jerk reaction is to get hurt, is to get offended, is to get angry at that person. But, but to love is to care enough to say something. They say in coaching that how do you know the coach is on your side? He's yelling at you. When he stops yelling, that's when you know you got an issue. When people around you stop correcting you, it's an indication they don't love you or that you don't have the maturity to receive it. Tonight I've spoken mostly about conflict in spiritual family. But what about marriages, relationships, work? I would not recommend you oppose your boss boldly to his or her face. I would not recommend going to your spouse and saying, beautiful, your conduct is not in step with the gospel on this issue. Number four is, and lastly, to reflect on how Christ handled the greatest conflict. He endured it. Galatians 2.20, later on in this chapter, the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How did, how did God handle the conflict of our own sin? I mean, we were enemies of the cross, we despise God. We, pers- we put him on the cross with our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He took the wounds for our sin. And what did Jesus do? He just endured it. He patiently endured it. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And if it's good enough for Jesus to just endure suffering, to endure conflict, to turn the other cheek, to forgive, to be merciful, to be gracious should be good enough for us. In Jesus Christ, the perfect balance of love and truth was exhibited on the cross. And that's what the book of Galatians is all about. Jews and Gentiles brought together in the family of God through Jesus' death and resurrection. This gospel is for all, and if we believe it, we have to handle conflict and maintain the unity of the Spirit. I want to take a moment here in the last minute that I have to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal where there might be conflicts in our past, in the present, and ask Him to search our hearts. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, we, we thank you that your presence is here and that you, God, remind us of all truth. You speak to us. Lord, we look right now to the cross of Jesus Christ that in the face of conflict, the greatest conflict, the injustice that he received because of our sin, Lord, he endured it. And Lord, it's looking at that example that as you remind us of people who have perhaps offended us, hurt us, or people whom we've offended or hurt, Lord, I'm asking that you convict us. You give us the courage to have a hard conversation we need to have. You give us the courage and the grace to forgive someone we need to forgive. 
If we're being, Lord, there are people here in this room who are being mistreated at work by a boss who doesn't know you. There are marriages in here, Lord, where husband and wife are at each other's throats. There's hurt, there's pain. Lord, I'm asking for grace 